Turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms. This morning we'll be in Psalms 96, the book of Psalms about halfway through God's Word. It's in your Bible. If you just kind of open it up, it should get pretty close to landing in Psalms right in the middle. Last week we began a series on the gospel. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and and talks about how the gospel is of primary or foremost or paramount or first importance. It, it is vital and it comes before all things. It is what saves us, it sustains us, it is our foundation. We talked about four key words there that you see on the screen as far as a framework for the gospel, four key words and thoughts and understandings, four key points of the gospel message, God, man, Jesus. And response. And so this morning we want to turn our attention to God and think about what does it mean. You know, that, that framework is just a really a, a simple way to understand and remember, to recall to mind the, the gospel message that God who is holy created all things. He created man in his image to glorify him and to worship him, but man rebelled against God and sinned and Separation between God and man came as a result of that sin, and as a result of that sin, man was to be punished. He became an object of God's wrath, in need of salvation, a relationship broken. There's nothing that man could do to restore that relationship. God, knowing this purpose for before the foundation of the world, Scripture tells us in multiple places that before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to send Jesus, His own Son born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. He lived without sin, to suffer and die on a cross in our place, taking on the wrath of God that we deserve. And he rose victoriously from the grave three days later and ascended into heaven. And the great promise of Scripture is that all who repent of their sins, turn from their sins and trust in Christ will be saved. It's just an easy way to walk through God, man, Jesus' response to remember the gospel. But we want to break that down and look at each aspect of the gospel message. And so today we turn to, to God and what does it mean? And we, we make that statement about God that he is holy. He is the creator of all things. See, we, we must begin with God because God is the gospel. He is the good news. And so we have to consider and know God's character, his works, and, and understand why it is that his character and works and his very existence makes the gospel good news. As we said last week, that the gospel is about God and what God did to reconcile us to God, right? It's all about God. And so we cannot start and jump into the gospel message and tell people the good news and tell them they need to be saved without starting with God. We have to begin with God. And so today, we're going to look at three key points or three key truths that we need to remember about God when we're thinking about the gospel message. Now, this is not in any way going to exhaust everything that we can know or even should know about God. We, we can't do that. We will never be at the point where we know everything about God. We're focusing narrowly today on what we need to understand and what we need to convey about God as it relates to the gospel message. So our three key truths today are this. One is that God created all there is, so all that is 
is his. Okay? God created all there is, so all that is is his. Second, God is holy and just. God is holy and just. And third, because God is holy, he must act in justice to punish sin. Those are three key points that we'll look at throughout the sermon. But before we get there and before we look at Psalm 96, I think we need to back up a little bit, perhaps for some sitting in here today, and consider a profound and an important statement. God is. God is. Have you considered the implications of that? Have you considered the the meaning of that? The implications are that, that God truly exists. And in fact, to say that God is would mean to say that there is one who existed long before man. He's eternal. It's to say that there is one greater than man. To say that God is is to say that there is one that we answer to. But the reality is that statement, God is, is not a statement that is readily accepted by everyone, particularly in our day. And it's not just in our day. It's not as though 50 years ago or 500 years ago that everyone around believed in God. There's always been doubters. If you look at Psalm 14, and another psalm, I can't recall the, which one it is, but Psalm 14 talks about the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There were those who doubted and were skeptical all the way back in the times of Scripture. So this is not popular or necessarily popular today by everyone or everyone accepting that there is a God. And some with it would say, yeah, there is a God, but perhaps we can't know him. We don't know. We're not real sure. What we tend to see and hear today is that many hold to what would be described as a naturalistic view of life. A naturalistic view, a view that, that everything that exists, exists by natural means. And so what those would contend who would hold to a naturalistic view is that science is authoritative. And it can answer all of our questions about beginnings. It explains how ev- and why everything came to be. Not only is science authoritative, but the naturalistic view would say that evolution is the great starting point and the path along which the natural order progresses. Now, in opposition to this, the, the Bible presents a, a very different claim, a, a radically different claim. And we, as soon as we start the Bible, what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the starting point, that God made all there is. He created everything. He is the original cause, the first cause. He alone is eternal, right? He created everything out of nothing in a purposeful and intentional manner, giving all of life intrinsic value. We read in, in Romans chapter 1, we look at Romans 1, 19 to 20, we read this, for what can be known about God is plain to them, I'm talking about us, because God has shown it to us, shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So there, Romans 1 is, presents a testimony that God's eternal power, his divine nature, is clearly perceived in creation, in God's creation. We see it. We see the Lord. If you hear Psalm 19, 
Same thing, the testimony of Scripture, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation is constantly, continually declaring the existence and the, the power of God. So Romans 19 Roman, uh, sorry, Romans 1, Psalm 19, Genesis 1, throughout Scripture even. Those are just three passages this morning for you. But if you just read the whole Scripture, we see that creation manifests the glory of God. Creation is called to worship God. That is its function. But what we learn specifically for us this morning, we think about God and His existence. I think it's important to note that the existence of God is not a debate between science and the Bible. That's not what it is. It's not as though you have to choose and say, well, I'll believe the Bible or you believe science. That's not the issue this morning. You see, science is a good gift from God. God has given us science to see His glory, to study the way He made creation. Just think for a moment. Think about astronomy. Astronomy affords us opportunities to gaze into the heavens and, and to see the glory of God. The heavens that declare God's glory to gaze and to see the greatness and the might and the splendor of the Lord. Or maybe, maybe some of you in here like biology. Biology allows us to, to look at life, to see the beauty of life, the complexity of life, the intricacies of the cell and the complexity of how we're designed. To see how God intentionally designs things. To see his care and his order for how things function and work. Or what about, what about chemistry and physics? Chemistry and physics afford us opportunities to explore the physical laws that God's put into place to keep things functioning in an ordered and proper manner. We see that God is a God not of chaos, but a God of order. See, science is the opportunity to see God revealed in creation. The Christians should be thankful for science. Now, we don't worship science. We don't submit to science as authoritative. That's an important distinction. I don't submit and go, okay, what the Bible says is true because of science. I don't, I don't look and go, well, okay, I might believe this if I can prove it in science. That's not the way we approach it. That's backwards. Science has been gifted to us by God to glorify God and see God's glory displayed. I, I, I would just throw some evidences to you this morning. I think it's important for us to think, and we think perhaps today that you're here and you're skeptical. You don't know, and, and you go, well, I, don't, I just don't know about what the evidence is. I mean, you talk about the Bible all this time. Well, I would say that science presents evidence as well for God's existence. I mean, just think about design. Think about the fact that when we look at creation, there is an overwhelming presence of design all throughout creation. And it unashamedly points to God. That, that things are designed for a set purpose. That things are designed in such a way that they, they really could not have evolved. We don't have time to get into all the depths of this and all the, all the ways we see this. But a couple quick examples would be the complexity of the eye. That the eye cannot just evolve and just gradually come to where it is. It had to come in full working order. You can talk to Mark Huffman about that. If you want to know more, he can tell you a lot more than I can about it. Or you think about the... The process of blood clotting, a multi-step process that if you remove one of those steps, you either bleed to death or, or a clot is thrown too soon and you have a stroke. There's an author I read years ago, and 
throughout his book, he's talking about creation, how it shows evidences for God's design and, and against evolution. And throughout the book, he says over and over and over again a point that we need to consider. Dead things don't evolve. If something cannot live, it cannot advance. Blood clotting in itself points to design. So you have the evidence of design. You ha also have the evidence of information. The, the fact that there is information everywhere we look. Particularly, you look at DNA. If you talk about the complexity of DNA and the information that you see in DNA, and you understand everybody in here uses computers at some level, and computers function on what's called binary, right? One and zero, sequencing of one and zero. Just two numbers that design and tell a, a computer how to function, how to operate, how it runs its operating systems. And none of us have ever walked in and gone, my goodness, can you believe that? That operating system just happened to appear. There, it, there was enough time that it just it happened to come into place. Wow. No. What we see and what we understand throughout the created order is when we see information of any kind, any kind, if I'm walking through the national forest and I come across a tree that has TM, heart SM, I don't go, huh, wow, that's fascinating how the bark grew. No, I look and go, Steph must have been here <laughs> thinking about me, right? No, when we see information, we know what? There is intelligence behind that information. Now you take all that computers do, and they do do it on a sequence of two numbers, ones and zeros. If you take DNA, DNA is a sequence of four chemicals, four chemicals. A, you see that if you look at the, the design of, of DNA and you look at the little graph, it always says like A, G, C, and T and the different chemicals that make that up. Complexity, information, that shows design, that shows evidence of a creator. I think those are astounding evidences. Or you have also the laws of science. You think about the laws of science, the, the first law of thermodynamics, that energy is conserved, that all existing processes of nature merely change energy from one form to another. Energy is not created, it's not destroyed. Energy is not, uh, or matter, I'm sorry, matter is not eternal, Right? We, we read in Scripture, and Scripture attests to this as well. All things were created through Him. In Him all things exist, in Christ does. All things exist. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, he made, uphold, he made all things, upholding all things by the word of His power. And 2 Peter 3, 5, and 7 says, By the word of God, the, the present heavens and earth are reserved, kept in store. Or you look at the second law of thermodynamics, that energy dissipates that the total energy available is reduced, something called entropy, that, that things essentially, that as best I understand this, I'm not a scientist, the best way I understand it is things are going from order to disorder. They are decreasing. Energy is used and becoming less and less available. Things are not getting better and more powerful. They're getting weaker and worse. Psalm 102, verse 26, even they will perish, talking about the starry heavens, but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Romans 8.22 talks about the whole creation groaning and suffering. Science just attests to the fact that matter is not eternal. There is only one who is eternal, and that is God. 
We could continue and go on, think about geology, the fossil record, that there are no missing links that you might expect if you would hold to evolution. They're not there. What instead you see is when you look through the fossil record, you see this explosion of life forms, fully formed creatures. I'm sure you probably have heard, if not, you should have heard, or you can look it up. Darwin himself pointed out that this was a great flaw of his theory. Or you can think about what's known as the anthropic principle, that earth has been uniquely suited for life. If any variation, any change comes, life cannot exist here. I, I, I loved it, just this, just listen to this one fact and we'll move on. The astrophysicist Lawrence Krauss wrote that if the force of gravity were changed by 1 times 10 to the 37th, that's 37 zeros, then both the earth and the sun would be non-existent. Non-existent. Precision for life. God has revealed his existence through creation. God is. God exists. Now listen, we all look at the evidence before us. Everyone in here. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. We all look at the evidence. We all have the same evidence before us. And we all have to decide. Is all that we see, we look in the mirror, and we look to the heavens, and we look around. Did that all happen as a result of time and chance? Or did it happen as a result of God who created all things? What's the evidence point to? It is a matter of faith. And it really doesn't matter which way you come down there. Everyone lives by faith. Because there is no empirical study that can be done from the beginning. And so you can't look at me if you're a skeptic and say, I'm not a believer, you're a person of faith. Well, I would say you're a person of faith too. As a matter of fact, I would say it probably takes more faith to be an unbeliever and to deny God's existence if you honestly look at the evidence. The Christian in the Bible is very honest about this. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what I want us to do in the rest of our time is jump in Psalm 96. We looked at creation, how creation attests to the existence of God, magnifies his divine power and attributes. And so we look at creation, look at general revelation, that God has revealed himself to all men. And I want us to look at Psalm 96 and think about what, is, what does God say about himself? What does God make known to us in his word? Let's read Psalm 96 together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all God. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the 
glory, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 96 is a, is a psalm written by David and it's one that, that just bursts forth with joy and exuberance and excitement as we're, we're called to worship. It was, it was actually written, you can just write in your site in your margin there, First Chronicles 16, 23 to 33 is when we see this psalm first. It was written by David as a, a part of a song giving thanks to the Lord when the ark was brought back to Jerusalem. And here we have it put into the Psalter. In, in the first three verses there, we were called to sing unto the Lord. It's a, a call to worship Him. And we are appropriately called to worship Him. Why? Because we were created to worship Him. Scripture attests to this, that, that we are designed and called to worship Him as His creation. Isaiah 43, 7 God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. In Isaiah 43, 21, just down through that chapter, it says, the people whom I formed my, for myself, that they might declare my praise. That the reason God formed us is to declare his praise. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we read, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory for the glory of God. We exist to give glory to him. We exist to praise his great name. We exist to worship him and to adore him, to magnify him, to proclaim him. He is worthy of worship and he calls us to worship. And we see here right away, oh, sing, 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 that singing is a natural part of our response, is a natural response to God. That when we think about what God has done, we think about who He is, that our reflex should be to sing unto Him, to rejoice in Him. Who are we to sing to? He says, sing to the Lord. What does He say we are to sing? A, a new song. Someone already asked this morning, are we singing a new song today? I read Psalm 96. Well, it's new to some of you, right? Some of you have never seen some of those, some of those songs. Who's to sing? All the earth. Everyone. Everyone. There's no qualifications to, hey, sing if you have a great voice. Sing if you feel like it. It's just sing all the earth. What's the purpose of our singing? To sound good? To have fun? To feel good? No. The purpose of our singing is to bless His name. Bless His name. Praise His name. Worship Him. Exalt Him. Magnify Him. Sing, 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 sing unto the Lord. Verses 2, the end of, of verse 2 and into 3, we see God's missionary focus. The, what's called the missio dei, the, the mission of God. We see in these verses, we're told to tell of his salvation among the nations, among all the peoples. And if you skip down to verse 10, we're to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
We're to magnify Him. We're to declare Him. We're to share Him. We're to tell of Him among all the nations. It is not as though we come here with this secret knowledge that we have and we keep it. No, we are called to proclaim the gospel, to call people unto salvation, to call them to respond to what God has done in repentance and faith. That word there in in verse uh, 2, the second line of verse 2, tell of his salvation is the Hebrew word basar, and it means to bring good news or to proclaim good news. We're to announce all that God's done. Our praise and worship should magnify him. We should exalt him. We should declare the news that we are saved by him. We rejoice in our salvation as we sing of and declare our salvation. Spurgeon, I love what he said on this, on this verse. He said, the gospel is the clearest revelation of himself. I'm talking about God. Salvation outshines creation and providence. Therefore, let our praises overflow in that direction. Salvation outshines creation and providence. We look at creation. We, we look to the heavens. We see the, the beauty of the stars, the magnificence of the skies. We look through a telescope and we see just how fascinating all these things are in space. Or we look at a, a microscope and we see the complexity of our own bodies, our own body systems. And we just shake our head and wonder and go, my goodness. And I love what Spurgeon says. He says, that's amazing, that's incredible, but salvation outshines all of that. Because when we think about salvation, we think about the one who created all of that, who fashioned all of it, who's absolutely holy, we'll talk about in just a moment, saving those who have rejected and spurned him. Salvation is beauty. Beauty and beautiful to behold. So why then? Why are we to worship him? Why are we to declare his praises? Look at, look at your text there. Tell of his salvation from day to day is to be continually. We're to broadcast salvation broadly, right, to the nations among all the peoples, and we're to do so daily. But why? Why are we to do this? He gives us several reasons. One, God created all things. God created all things, verses 4 through 5. You remember, this is our first point. I said there were three main points we were talking about. The, the first one, God created all things. God created all there is, therefore, all that is, is His. Okay? So God created. That's the, the first reason. We, we talked about Genesis 1-1. You read Exodus 20-11, where we read, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Isaiah 42, 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. In John 1, 3, we read, all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Creation is declared and magnified and understood and celebrated all through Scripture. I mean, every time you turn around if you're reading if you're perhaps you're doing the daily reading just note how often just even in passing it seems 
that the biblical writers think about and write about and refer to God's creation. God created all things. And we have to consider this truth. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you have to consider the fact that God is the creator. You have to consider that. Unbeliever, this is an important point, that God created all things. It means that he rules over creation. If we say that God created all things, he rules over it. He's Lord. He's in charge. I just finished reworking my deck, and I, I, I built the main structure of it five years ago and, and improved it and, and made it better, hopefully, to see if my family all walks on it without falling through this week. But it's my deck, and I get to decide what I do with it. I get to decide if I go out there this week and go, you know what, I don't like it. I'm going to rip it all apart and burn it. You can't go, no, you can't do that. It's my deck. It's not yours. I put it together. I built it. I know why I want to use it. I know why I have it like it is. It's the same concept that, that we find in Romans 9. Romans 9 is such a, a rich and deep and even a difficult chapter of Scripture. When we're looking at God's mercy display magnifying God's mercy and his choice. And Paul looks, and in defense of God showing mercy on some, Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, what have you, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Listen, God's the potter. We're the clay. He is Lord. We're his subjects. He's the creator. We're the creation. He reigns. I can't look and go, I don't like that. So the fact that God created you, unbeliever, means that you may have things that you have questions about. You may have things that you disagree with. But guess what? You didn't create everything. You didn't make everything. God did. And we answer to the creator. We don't command or demand of the creator. We answer to him. He reigns supreme. He rules over creation. He's the Lord of creation. But for a believer, when we think about the fact that God created, it means that we have to begin the gospel with God. We share the gospel with someone. We tell someone the good news. The good news starts with God. That's where we begin. Because if we don't, if we just jump to the end, then someone's going to have a hard time understanding why that's the good news. We need to begin with God. We need to talk about what He's done. We need to talk about who He is. He's created and He is Lord so that people understand what they're saved from. Listen, I, I think a lot of the difficulty people have with the gospel and understanding why God would send people to hell is that people have an insufficient understanding of who God is and what God has done. If we understand who God is, then we understand how God and why God can punish people and send them to hell. We need to start with God. Because all that God does arises out of who God is. And in Psalm 96, David declares the superiority of God. He is Lord. He reigns. Why? Because he is real. He is the true God. That's, that's what he says. Look at verse... Um, uh, verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are 
worthless idols. But, that's a big but there, but the Lord made the heavens. The, the creative nature of God, the fact that he created, separates him and distinguishes him from false gods. It sets him apart. The same thing that, that Paul or uh, David wrote in Psalm 115. Starting in verse 4, he says, Their idols, talking about the nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but they don't hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound, a sound in their throat. In verse 8, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. If you can turn here later, I think one of, the, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture about idolatry and the futility of worshiping something that is not the real, true creator God is Isaiah 44, 9 to 20. It's a lengthy passage. You should read it later. The reality and the truth we have to understand is that God created all there is, and therefore all there is is His. And understanding that truth, should lead us to worship Him, to sing unto Him, to serve Him. The second thing we see is in verse 6 through 13 of Psalm 96, that God is holy and just. He's holy and just. See, not, Psalm 96 magnifies God's character. Just trace along and, and, and look at this. In, in verse 4, we see God is described as great. In verse 6, we read, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. In verse 7 and 8, we're to ascribe to him glory and strength. Glory and strength. And, and in verse 8 particularly, I would say, ascribe to the Lord the glory. What does he say? The glory do his name. Give him glory. Proclaim his glory. Now, this is in, in stark contrast to Romans 1.18, where in Romans 1.18, we see that man exchanges the glory of God for what is created. Instead, we, we say, you know, we, uh, we don't want the glory of God. We want the glory of my car or my house or my yard or my clothes or my image. That's what I like. We exchange the glory of God. But here in verse 8, Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. He is worthy of glory absolutely worthy of glory then in verse 9 we're to worship him in the splendor of holiness or in holy attire your version might say why why does that matter what matters because god is holy god's holiness is the base the foundation for what we do and how we do it that's why in leviticus 19 2 and in first peter 1 16 it says that we are to be holy why not to earn salvation. We're to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Because of what God has done. We're to glorify Him and manifest Him and live for Him. Here we're to worship in holy attire. Why? Because He is holy. Holiness. You need to know. Holiness is essential to God's character. It's essential to God's character. It's not accidental. It's not something as though it's like, well, it's not important. It's just kind of, well, we're glad God's holy. That's really nice added benefit to who God is. No, God's holiness is essential to his character. If God is not holy, he ceases to be God. God does not exist apart from being holy. He cannot exist outside of being holy. Now, holiness, just briefly, has 
kind of two understandings, two dynamics, two aspects. One, holiness is the idea of being transcendent or set apart, right? Set apart, other. But it also has a, a moral quality to it. It is a, a purity, a righteousness, a cleanliness, that God is absolutely pure. He's absolutely without sin, without evil. God is revealed in Scripture foremost as holy. Many of you know this. We just sang of it, holy, holy, holy. It's the only characteristic with that that three-time repetition repeated of God, of his attributes, we see in Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Roman, or Revelations 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then you heard Dana read from Psalm 99, three times in that psalm, at the end of the stanzas, every time the end is, for he is holy. Holy is he. Holy is he. The Lord our God is holy. God is a holy God. It's the attribute of God that pervades every other attribute. Every aspect of who he is is holy. So what that means is his love is holy. His justice is holy. His wisdom, his goodness, his decrees are holy. They're perfect. He is holy. He is set apart. That means that God is not like us. Now we'll talk more about this next week. God is not like us. He is high. He is exalted. He's magnificent. He's majestic. He's holy. He's glorious. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. 1 Samuel 2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you compare me, God asks, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who's like me, God says. Who's like me? I mean, just think about it. Just look around. Who's holy like our God? No one. He's distinct. We are made in his image. We'll talk about that next week. We are made in his image. He is not made in ours. We are made in His likeness. We don't form and choose to make God in our likeness. God is holy and exalted. Now, why is this important we think about the gospel? Well, it's important we think about the gospel because the fact that God is holy, it means that there's no sin in Him. He does not commit sin. He does not condone sin. It is detestable in His sight. Sin must be punished. And Psalm 96 not only speaks of and reminds us of how majestic and mighty and holy God is, but it also reminds us that He is just. And His justice, His justness arises out of the one who is absolutely holy and righteous. His justness comes out of that. God being holy means that He must judge. How can God judge? Because he's Lord. He created everything. Why would he judge? Because he's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous and absolutely just. We see that three times in chapter, or Psalm 96. In verse 10, it says, He will judge the peoples with equity. And in verse 13, twice, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
God will judge. God will judge. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's holy. If holiness is essential to his character, then he must judge sin. Holiness, righteousness, justice are aspects of his character, so he must act accordingly. If he doesn't, we don't want to worship him. If he says, I'm holy, but then he does not act as though he is holy, then there's a problem there. If he says he's righteous, but he does not do what is right, there's a problem. God acts according to who he is. And to disregard sin, to think nothing of sin, to excuse it, would be to violate who he is. But we have to understand, when we think about God judging, we think about the fact that Psalm 96 says that he is just, he will come to judge. That his judgment, his judging is holy. It's holy. It's not tainted. It's not as though we look and go, well, God judges, but he, he's unrighteous. No, God is holy. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul calls him the righteous judge. His judgment is perfect, it's just, it's righteous, it's holy. So he does not judge us with ill intentions or false motives. He, he does not judge us with an agenda with a sinful bent. He does not judge just on a whim. No, God judges in absolute holiness with perfect wisdom, with perfect righteousness. God will judge. He can because He's Lord. He will because he's holy. And that goes for everyone here today. God will judge. So what are the implications then? What are the implications? We think about this, we think about the gospel, we bring it all back to where we began. We bring it all back to where we began. That first God existed before creation. He is eternal. The implication is that if God is the creator who is holy, that he created all there is and all there is is his, then that means that God existed before creation. He is eternal. Matter is not eternal. We know that. We see that. We observe that. It's not eternal. Things are not getting better. They're not getting better in our society. We'll talk about that next week. But they're also something set aside will not get better naturally. It will decline it will go from order to disorder because matter is not eternal god is eternal he is the first cause he is real he is god the second implication is that if the creator who is holy has created all things and reigns supreme is lord over all things he existed before creation he's eternal and secondly, that means that God is greater. He's greater than us. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's Lord, he's the authority, he's holy, he establishes what is right and wrong. He sets that standard. The majority does not set that standard. The pollsters don't set that standard. What's trendy does not set that standard. Philosophy does not set that standard. 
God sets that standard because he is Lord, he is holy, he is greater. And so he establishes what is right and wrong. And then finally, the final implication is that means it is God to whom we must answer. It's God to whom we must answer. At the end of the day, I don't answer to anybody in here. Neither do you. At the end of the day, it's appointed unto man to die once and then to face judgment. We stand before God. We don't answer to unholy men. We answer to the holy God who created all things, who reigns as Lord over all things, the one who made us. That's enough to make you tremble if you think about it. That all of us in the depth of our sin and rebellion will one day stand before God. But that's why the gospel is good news. That's why it's good news. Because God, who is holy and created all things, who knows what is right and wrong and established what is right and wrong, who made you in his image, who knows that you rebelled against him, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place as a demonstration of his love. And he rose victoriously from the grave, and the good news is that you do not have to stand before God and try to go, well, look at what I've done. Look at how good I've been. I mean, if we go on percentages, I was good like 68% of the time. It's really good. It's not holy. It falls short. But the good news is we don't stand before God and say, look what I did. Look who I am. And we stand before God and we I've been redeemed and saved by Christ. My faith and my trust is in Christ alone. And His righteousness has been credited on my account. So when I stand before God, I'm not going to say, look at my righteousness. I stand, as those of you in here who are believers, you stand and say, I wholly depend on the righteousness of Christ who saved me and made me a new creation. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning the holy God who created all things God you spoke and everything came to be by the power of your word and we praise you and we thank you for displaying your power and your attributes through creation we thank you that you've given us creation that 
declares your glory, that proclaims your excellencies, proclaims the work of your hands. But, oh God, we praise you and we thank you that more than that, you sent forth your Son, that God, you revealed yourself perfectly, fully through Jesus, and you revealed yourself through your word that we might know how to be saved. And we might know that salvation is by Christ alone. It's not by our works. It's not by us trying to be something. God, thank you for that good news. God, we worship you. God, we're here because we want to sing unto you. We want to rejoice in you. And God, there is never a day in which that's inappropriate. There's never a day, whether it's the lowest of low or highest of high. We can't worship you. Because God, you are worthy. You're worthy of our worship when we can't stand, when we weep. So that we can't speak, God, and we tremble. You're worthy of worship. God, you're worthy of worship when we're just excited, full of joy, full of laughter. God, you're worthy of worship because you created us. You are the potter. You are holy. And so, God, we are here to give you the glory due your name. Well, God, we praise you now in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you as we close our time of worship with the hymn, How Great Thou Art. As, as you think about this hymn and you think about the message, you're just going to see what we've talked about through the verses of this hymn. I want to invite you to stand. If you would like to confess Christ and follow him, I'd love to talk to you down here or out in the foyer afterwards. The invitation is always open. I encourage you to come before the Lord and repent and trust him in faith and me or one of the pastors or somebody else that you came with or know could love to talk to or would love to talk to you about that. If you have questions about joining the church and what that looks like, we'd love to talk to you as well. Let's stand, let's sing, let's worship him now.